Recording live from the Inwood Film Festival in Inwood, New York City, welcome to this very special edition of Inwood Artworks On Air. We are recording this podcast in front of a live audience who have just finished watching the Inwood-based true life tale of the greatest beer run ever to close out the sixth annual Inwood Film Festival. I'm your host, Aaron Sims, and I have the pleasure and honor of speaking with the man who made the run himself, Inwood's own John Chick Donahue, and the producer of the greatest beer run ever, Andrew Lascato. So, welcome to uh, the Inwood Arts on air slash Inwood Film Festival version of uh, a post-show conversation here. Uh, and I'm very, very just fortunate, I want to say the word is, to uh, have uh, John Chicky Donahue here, as well as Andrew Moscato, the producer of The Greatest Beer Run Ever. significance for us to watch your story of a local man uh, here in this community. So, Chicky, we just watched the film here uh, with the community. First time, the first ever screening here in Inwood professionally. What are your thoughts? What are your reactions? How do you feel? Well, I, uh, I feel emotional. Uh, it brings back uh, bad memories and good memories. I'm honored, I'm honored that it's in Inwood. I'm honored that there are so many people from Inwood here. I was telling my wife this morning when we were talking about coming here, and my wife has been ill for a couple of years now, and she doesn't get out that much. And I simply said, it's home. We have to go home. There's going to be people there who, uh, in the neighborhood, who probably uh, won't see this movie and won't know the most important thing that I know about this movie is that the four guys that I found are all alive. <laughs> we speak monthly. We get together every couple of months with the wives, and uh, I hate to sound like a male chauvinist, but uh, the wives will talk about uh, shopping and whatever wives talk about, and me and the four other guys would just sit there and look at each other and laugh. <laughs> but not them. It's like uh, the ultimate beating the system routine. <laughs> Well, um, that, is, that is the best quote unquote, ending we could possibly talk about, which is our press, that they're still here amongst us. Um, what's also wonderful, I have to say, is that Andrew uh, fought for this story mm -hmm. to be told, because you wrote a book, to spoke so everyone knows, I'm going to go soup the nuts here. Uh, it's Chicky's story that was co-authored uh, but Joanna Malloy, correct? Joanna and, and then uh, Andrew, uh, so it's available, we can read it or we can find your books. And then Andrew fought for how many years, Andrew, to get this, was the journey from getting the rights to this show and, uh, and, and bring it to where we just saw it today? 
Uh, yeah, no, I was just thinking about that. So it was nine years from when Joanna, nine years ago that Joanna told me the story about Chicky and um, his, his trip to find guys from Inwood. And it started out, you know, Joanna was going to write a book, and I had the idea of making a short documentary as a way to garner interest for a movie. And, and Chicky and Tommy Collins, Rick Dugan, and Bob Pappas all reunited to tell the story, and that, that came out on YouTube in 2015. Uh, but it's amazing. I grew up in New Jersey. My, my family is from a you know from the Irish American uh, section in Newark, New Jersey. So you know there's some similarities. So I, I understood when I heard the story, and, and um, you know nothing is exactly like Inwood. But but the guys, you know, Chicky and his friends are, are felt like you know family I'd grown up with, and and I could understand and certainly appreciate uh, what this neighborhood was and what it still is today. And so having that story told that that is about this kind of close-knit community uh, and, and the kind of timeless message behind it, I thought was, was really important. So it really was this, um, you know, it became a passion project, I think, for everybody involved as the team got bigger and bigger. Um, but it's, it's just quite surreal to be able to sit here today in Inwood and, and share the film with you all. So, so thanks for this opportunity, Aaron, and thank you all for coming out. Absolutely. Thank you. Can I say something about Andrew? Uh, I first met Joanna Malloy at, uh, I'm, a, I'm a trade unionist. Uh, my trade was the Sandhogs. <laughs> and I started out with the Sandhogs and uh, the city went broke and I wound up in a position it, over a period of three or four or five years as the political and legislative guy. And uh, I learned right away uh, how hard it was to lobby uh, in a short time, in a long time. And uh, I discovered that I should get a, a short documentary about what I was lobbying about. And it was about the water tunnel, the third city water tunnel. And the city was broke, they couldn't put the money into it. And it was a real disaster waiting to take place. If it would have uh, occurred, uh, it can't now because we finished enough of the water tunnel to back up tunnels one and two. But it was a real potential disaster. So I just knew that that would help. And when Joanna spoke about, she introduced me to uh, Andrew. And uh, he took it right from there. Uh, before that, uh, Hollywood tried to make a, a movie out of this about 40 years or so ago, and they did what uh, they told me was called a treatment. And, uh, and the treatment was very violent. There was some violence here, uh, but much more in the other treatment. And it, it just had things that weren't true. And uh, my daughter, who sits here now with her daughter, I was worried, I didn't want her to think that her father had anything to do with what Hollywood would have produced. So uh, I got out of the deal. And 25 years later, and 25 years later, uh, after my, my kids grew and I had grandchildren, and Joanna retired from the Daily News, and I had met Joanna and worked with her in that strike in 91, I think it was. Uh, she retired and she decided uh, that this is what she wanted to do. I get 
what Andrew did was, after he did it, it's a 12-minute tape, yeah. a 12-minute tape. I don't know how many people said this has to be a movie. Oh, I forgot one important thing. Joanna Malloy guaranteed me, and she was right, that she would write it accurately. Uh, there would be no uh, building it up in the book. That's all I wanted. I just wanted to leave a book for my kids and my grandkids to know the true story. And again, all of the guys were still alive. We don't know how long that was going to last. So, and then she brought in Andrew. Andrew did it, and 90% of the people who read the book said, this has to be a movie. And in fact, it was Andrew that presented it in that way. And Malloy put it into the book that way. So uh, I'm just the guy who went over and brought some beers to my buddies in Nam. <laughs> but Andrew Moscato oh, and Joanna Malloy really brought it to the public and really brought it to, I get such pleasure out of meeting veterans. And so many of them say things like, hey, I was up in Fubai. Why didn't you bring me up a beer? <laughs> and I said to them, pardon my language, tough shit. You're not from, in you're not from Inwood and you're not Irish. <laughs> So that's the real world. Yeah. Uh, did I have regrets once this happened? Yeah. Uh, Dugan was the first one where I really saw action. I wasn't in the action. I, did, I was not John Wayne. I was ducking. And it's, uh, the movie really tells it close, real close. They did offer me a weapon. Uh, during the amp when I got out to the ambush post and they said they were coming and <laughs> I said oh my god what the hell did I do here uh, but it's I'm sitting there and, and I can't think of the Johnny Knuffs and the Michael McGoldrick's and the uh, Tommy Minogue's and uh, Johnny, did I say Knuff? Yeah. There's, there's, there were so many of them. And Inwood was a very sad place at that time. I would walk down the street and I would see the parents. This is a, a lovely area, but it's kind of confined. And uh, everybody's on 207th Street, at least part of the neighborhood's on 27th Street, the other part's on Dightman Street. And if you walk one of them streets, you're going to run into the parents of one of the guys we lost. It's still sad. I still feel sad when I think of all of those guys who we lost. And Inwood paid its dues. I know that for sure. And I'm, I'm proud of Inwood. I'm proud I grew up here. My wife over here of 53 years. It happens to be her birthday. 
and tomorrow's our anniversary. And how, how, how many years? 53 years. 53 anniversary tomorrow. And after this, after we leave here, we're going to go to 212 Street just to look at the building. That when I was caught in her, that's where she lived. And then we're going to go back up to Seaman and 27th Street in the dead end there. And that's where I grew up with my five siblings, mom and dad and grandma. Uh, I had a lovely childhood. I didn't know how crazy it was when I was growing up. But I look back at it now and it was, there was a lot of truth in that movie. That wasn't all Hollywood. Yeah. Well, actually, that brings me to a great point. Since we are at the Inwood Film Festival, I think it's important. It's an adaptation of a book. Uh, so, Andrew, would you mind, or Jackie and Andrew together, would you mind commenting? On, he said it's 90% what made it from the page to the screen. And so what was that process like? Because obviously, you sit down and read a book, it's a little more involved. And so, right. you know, answering the questions of like, what story points you want to bring out that the audience can bring you back to, to make sure Chick's story, Chicky's story is being coming across through a whole different medium. Yeah, well, so most of the time people ask, what does a producer do? And, and I feel like on this project in particular, I got to kind of feast for the, pardon my language, the shit buffet of what a producer <laughs> does because it really is, a, you know, shepherding a project from you have an idea of what would make a great movie to seeing it all the way through to, to being released. And so, you know, you're finding the studio, you're finding the filmmakers, the writer, director, the, the actors. But so I, I was involved in the, you know, in the process of, of developing the screenplay and Peter Farrelly and his two co-writers, Brian Curry and, and Pete Jones, were working on it. And, and there was this kind of constant reminder of what attracted all of us to this, this project was the simple story of a guy, you know, sneaks his way into a war to bring his buddies from his neighborhood a beer and that that kind of the themes of friendship and loyalty in the neighborhood and and to just not get too far from that and so there are there are you know um, you know creative license taken as far as as compressing the timeline Chicky was actually in Vietnam even longer than is depicted in the film right. which is quite remarkable uh, you know but but we really the, the kind of mantra over and over was just stick to the story it doesn't it didn't need any extra embellishment. The story's extraordinary enough, and, and it was just kind of stick to that main through line and, and really keep any, any creative license to just, um, you know, just, just uh, as a way to kind of expedite or, or help streamline the storytelling. Which is why I think why this, correct me if I'm wrong, audience story is so powerful because of the truth behind it, right? Yeah, they're all nodding and agreeing and hemming. Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's something that's, it's, it's, it's Good, and that's a point of story. Like the compression of time is like, how do we get the, how do we get the story to move faster and getting through it all? Because and also we have to also make sure we're caring about these characters too. Oh, absolutely, and and I mean, uh, you know, I, I can certainly say, I mean, Chicky, the the book is a is a great read if you haven't read it, and I certainly encourage you to do so. But there's other, um, you know, there's there's obviously other kind of anecdotes and, and experiences, and, and again, the fact that Chicky was you, you there's a version perhaps of the movie where it could have just been about Chicky kind of toying away in Saigon, waiting to get out of the country, story there, um, yeah. and then there, there's a big chunk of the book. That is kind of how he survived in, in Saigon uh, after Tet and before he was able to get on a ship. So, um, so yeah, no, but it was it was just again sticking to the story and, and um, that kind of got us all into it. And 
try not to deviate from there. But uh, do you have anything else to add, Chick? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Mrs. Minogue brought a very uh, mm. emotional part to this story. And, and that was very accurate. Uh, before I went, I uh, actually went to see some of the mothers, uh, the ones I could find. I saw Rick Dugan's mother, told her what I was doing. And if she, she used to send uh, film and stuff to Rick. And Rick has hundreds and hundreds of photographs. And Rick saw a lot of action over there. And uh, some of those photographs uh, backed up my story. Uh, I didn't know he had all those photographs. And it wasn't until years later uh, when the professionals got involved and they said, we got to document this. So I found a, a passport. I had no passport when I went. I had no visa when I went. All I had was my Siemens ID card from the Coast Guard. Jake, could you tell them actually what was the day you left and what was the day you returned? So those who haven't read the book, you can you tell them how long the actual run lasted? I left in the, uh, the middle of uh, November. I'd say around the 12th to the 15th, something like that. And I got back in the uh, middle of April. Uh, but he, there was no calendars. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, waiting for the St. Patrick's Day parade to come down Tudor Street in Saigon. Uh, I can only remember it was before Thanksgiving, and it was after St. Patrick's Day. Uh, we all seem to live around holidays like this weekend. But just a little bit of context for you. Yeah, and that was, that was actually fun. It was uh, growing up in Inwood, you got so many different people here, and so many talents here that I just picked up on it all. I mean, uh, uh, I just, it was, I used it all in Saigon. Uh, I finally got a passport from the embassy and it was uh, and stamped right on it, uh, issued at U.S. Embassy. And uh, that caused problems years later when I went to get a legal passport, a regular passport. That passport was only for like 90 days. And they said, you never had a passport. Why did you say you had one? When Saigon finally went kaput, they never could find records of me getting a passport. But the passport's there, and when the movie people saw it, and it's stamped, and it's all, and it's, and it was a, a surprise when we found it, and a coincidence, uh, we were moving. And uh, we were, you know, all the stuff you put in the drawer years ago, and it's still there. Uh, I pulled out a passport. And, uh, and she says, where'd you get that? I said, it's, uh, what are we doing with Brian's passport, our son's passport? And uh, she took it and she said, that's not Brian's passport, that's your passport. And I was 26th when they took the photograph of me in that passport. And coincidentally, our son Brian was 26. Oh, wow. And that was the only time 
that we looked identical. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just so many stories and we, the, the ship that I finally got a job on, and being a union man, I knew the rules, and I knew there's a, a, a maritime rule enforced by the unions that they can't sail a ship short if there's, like you need at least three oilers to run the engine room, uh, you can't sail with two. If there's a qualified union oiler in port, uh, so uh, some, some oiler was wounded during the Battle of Saigon, and uh, I found out, and I went to the ship, and I knew one of the seamen who was the ship's chairman, and I explained the, the rules. He took me to the captain, and the captain said, oh, no, no, I'm gonna, we'll pay overtime. And he said, no, 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 no. It's the rule. That's how I got home. <laughs> he had to hire me. <laughs> he didn't want to hire me, but he had to. So uh, I was on a slow boat to China, and I got on a banana boat from China. <laughs> it was full of food, and I used that food to uh, pay my bar bill. I never had to buy a drink in the Caravel Hotel. I would come there every day with that same bag. It would be full of food from this banana boat that sat on the river that nobody was emptying. So it, it, was, it was an experience. Uh, obviously, I could not have planned it. I just couldn't plan it. Did I think it, I would succeed? No. But I knew I had to try. And there's a line in the movie that my sister Christine did use, and she was so right when she says, everybody's doing something and you're doing nothing. And I had already served six years in the Marine Corps, four years active, two in the reserves, and I felt like I had a duty to be over there. What's the sense of joining the Marines and they're having a war and you're not gonna go over to it? But uh, it was just something that could, I couldn't have planned it. I mean, I planned a lot of things, but this one I couldn't have planned. Yeah, two, two, two things that came to mind is, one, Chickie had mentioned Mrs. Minogue, and that's, that's something that is, you know, we use a big creative license in, in the film, but, I mean, that's doing parts of Peter Farrelly. When he came on the project, what he wanted to know was, why did Chickie do this? And, you know, of, of course, there's the ex explanation of the kind of close-knit nature of the neighborhood, but emotionally, why, what really, I mean, you know, somebody can boast and say he'll do it, but really, why did he do it? And two things that emerged in the kind of brainstorming session with Chicky that really, um, you know, one of which wasn't in the book, it was his sister Christine, is that, uh, you know, talking about Christine, and she was this uh, anti-war protester, and the, 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 the fact that, um, you know, her and Chicky were, were at odds seemed, seemed like, uh, you know, something great for the film, which, which really, you know, she's mentioned in the book, but it's not necessarily a, a main storyline. And then also Mrs. Minogue, Tommy Minogue's death was an inspiration for, for Chicky to go over there, but it had happened before. You know, everybody knew that Tommy had already, had already been killed, but, but still finding a way to work that into this as, um, you know, so it's emotionally true, but, but the timeline is a little fudged. But, but I thought the Christine storyline was great because 
you know, getting to work her into the story. And it is true. I mean, it, she moved to, uh, her and her husband moved to Canada, too, yeah. right? And, yeah. and and the relationship with her and Shikia was was very fascinating. And that all just came out between conversations with Pete and his co-writers uh, with Shikia when we visited him in Florida. Can I say something about my sister, Christine? It's true. She was anti-war. She was a demonstrator and everything. Of course, she didn't tell me about that, and I never did see her in a demonstration, but I knew that's how she felt. And when Peter Farrelly called me and asked if uh, I would give him my sister's number, that he wanted to talk to her, it never dawned on me, but uh, that was like 50 years after this happened, or close to it. And I, I, I realized I had never had a conversation with my sister in those 50 years about Vietnam. In the beginning, we had words. And some of them words were not nice words, particularly about someone she was married to. And they did go to Canada. And at that time, in my mind, I would have felt like going up to Canada and taking them back and giving them to the FBI. That was my state of mind. My sister was totally different. And I told Peter Farrelly, oh, I have no problem with Christine. And then I thought of it. My God, 50 years, we never spoke about it. So I called Christine first before I would give Peter the number. And I'll never forget what she said to me. I said, Christine, you know, they're talking about this, blah, 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 blah. And Peter Farrelly asked for your number. He wants to talk to you about this movie and the war. And uh, before I give him the number, I'm asking, uh, is it okay? She says, sure, it's okay. She says, Chicky, I'm proud of what I did. I thought I was right then. I still think I was right then. I'm proud of what I did, and you can certainly give him my phone number, and I would gladly talk to him. Uh, it's something I, I can't imagine. Uh, we were a close family, and we didn't speak about something as important as that war for 50 years. So this movie became a catalyst, I believe, for a lot of conversations to happen with a lot of people yeah. in your life. Yeah. Bring it full circle. It's pretty great. Well, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to open up the conversation to the room here for uh, a few questions. So uh, I will uh, call a few people and just say, you know, please, uh, no comments. Let's first go strictly to questions, please. And uh, I will call on you and you, I will repeat your question for Shaheen. Okay, so right here. Um, so two questions. Uh, can you tell me where the bar would be located today? Doc Fiddler's? Where was Doc Fiddler's what, in Wood? What corner, what street was it? Like, yeah. It's on, it was on Sherman Avenue on the west side of Sherman Avenue, probably three stores north of Isham Street. Okay. So if you come out of that store and looked across yeah. the street, Chambers Bar was on the corner. And, and the other, the flagpole, the Colonel's flagpole is still there. It's the, on 207th. Actually, I saw it taking the one train up here. You can see it because uh, there's that gas station. Uh, was it on 207? It's a BP. On yeah, yeah. So the flagpole, the flagpole's on that corner, and there's a plaque that says in honor of Colonel Lynch there. It, so, yeah. it shows the flagpole is there. There's a little plaque in honor of George Lynch. We call him the Colonel. 
and it's probably there, the colonel, uh, mm -hmm. he just took that property. There was never a permit or license or anything. <laughs> As a matter of fact, George was a fantastic organizer, and uh, his brother was Finbar, uh, no, no, Finbar Devine uh, led the uh, NYPD bagpipe band. He was big six foot whatever with a big shtick, and he led the parade for years. And at the dedication of that flagpole was the, the bagpipe band, all of them. His other, uh, one of the other, Finbar's brother was an FBI guy. That was an FBI contingent. Billy Lenahan was a bartender working his way through law school. And uh, he wound up as the commanding officer of the Marine Corps Reserve out in Fort Schuyler. So we had a Marine Corps detachment. The nuns brought the kids down from Good Shepherd. <laughs> it was a big deal. And I remember the dedication, and some guy was there. He was clearly a public servant. You could just say he was a bureaucrat in this suit. And he says, oh, this is just great, isn't it great? He says, by the way, he says, uh, uh, I don't know how I missed this. Uh, I never saw this. The, 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 do you know, do they have a permit for this or something? <laughs> and Lynch heard that. Lynch says, yeah, we have a permit. He had no permit. Yeah. <laughs> And he says, oh, yeah, he says, he says, yeah. The number of it is July 4th, 1776. <laughs> you got a problem with that? <laughs> but that flagpole is still there. That's an awesome story. Oh, sorry, can I, yeah. but uh, I should have asked the other one first, but I wondered, is, was there an Oklahoma? Was no. There an Oklahoma? Or was that part of the story? Uh, uh, there was an Oklahoma. Uh, when Tet started on uh, January 30th, uh, that morning I was at the embassy looking to get my ride to Tonson, not, not Benoit, and uh, I was forced away from there and I went to the palace, and the palace was under siege. Everywhere I went was under siege the first day. So I wound up in a, in a construction site hiding under some equipment and under a set of big stairs. And the next morning I came out and uh, I walked up the street and uh, I was looking for a place to stay. I, uh, I learned Japanese in the Marine Corps and uh, I lived in Cholon in an old Korean hotel and the old Koreans still spoke Japanese. Anyway, and there was a we called them white mice, the nationalist police, the Vietnamese of nationalist police. And uh, I asked this guy, he said, where are you looking? Where are you going? So I said, I'm looking for a hotel. I need a hotel. He says, uh, I had a thing from the embassy, the consul office, saying that they would pay my bill. I had no money. So uh, I showed him this thing. And he said, right there, see that, that building? You go in there. My father, that's his hotel. Then I realized the guy was there, he was guarding his father's hotel. It's the only reason he was there. So I went into the, uh, to his father's hotel and they sort of took me in. Uh, but everybody wanted to know me then because I was the only one who had bags of food. <laughs> everybody ate who I knew. Brian? Uh, how many years did you actually travel? 
So what was the actual number of beers you left with, and were there any that came back with you? And what brand? <laughs> well, <clears throat> the brand meant nothing to me. Uh, I tried to take New York beers, so uh, I would have had maybe two cases, as much as you could put into that little duffel bag. And uh, I don't think I could have got three cases in there, but it would have been Schaefer. It would have been not even Budweiser. Budweiser was a foreign beer then. We had Schaefer, Rango, uh, and what was the other one? Schaefer, oh, Ballantyne, all right? And, and baseball fans would know the difference, all right? Uh, so that's what I, I, I just, I just grabbed them. I had to run, the ship was leaving, so I had to go. Was it, was it a three hour notice? Is that, was that accurate, the three hour notice? By the time you found out when the ship was leaving? Oh yeah, yeah, it was uh, maybe, maybe I found out at 10 and 11 o'clock in the morning. Wow. And, uh, and the ship sailed about seven or eight o'clock that night. Amazing. Uh, but on my way out there, uh, I thought I had to protect these beers. So I had no intentions of drinking any of those beers. So I stopped in a bar in Jersey. I don't know about it in New York now, but in New York in those days, you couldn't buy a six pack of beer in a bar. You had to go to a deli or a supermarket. Uh, so I stopped in a local bar and I had a beer. And then uh, I, and I was looking at the beers that he had there. So he says, where are you going? And I told him, he says, what are you doing over there? So, and I told him. He went in the back and came out with two more cases of beer. Please, here, take these over there with you. Uh, honestly, I drank all the beer before I got to no, Quinn. Yeah. <laughs> a true new guy and a true Irish. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, another question here. All right, uh, ready for the question. Oh, sorry. Jackie. How I feel about the war now? Yeah, and our place in it. Oh, wow. Uh, I'm still, I respect the military. Uh, I uh, understand the need of the United States having a strong military. Uh, I think what changed in my, not the opinion of the war, it was my opinion of the government. They lied. They simply lied. Uh, there's a piece in the, in, the, in the movie that's very accurate and I think very important and very telling of what changed me. Two pieces. One was that little girl on the road. It was a little boy, and he had a soccer ball, and he never said a word to me, but he had that, that fear in his face when he saw me. And I didn't have a, a, a I, I, wasn't, I didn't have a gun or even a helmet. I had nothing. I was just dirty old dungarees and a shirt. Uh, and, and I often thought of the fear in that kid's face for me. I couldn't understand it. Uh, it, but it clearly told me that the people over there were terrified of us. 
And then the other one was that morning at the embassy, uh, I discovered that how they got into the embassy on my own, uh, and the government did, uh, the first two that went into the grounds of the embassy were employees of the embassy. I actually saw one of their U.S. Embassy ID cards. Uh, they came through the side gate. They only showed you the front of the embassy in the movie, but the employee gate was on the right side. Uh, and they came through there and there were two MPs at that employee gate. And two employees came through, showed them their IDs, and this was like at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. And as soon as they let them pass, they, uh, they turned around and killed a boat. And those, uh, those rounds let the other 17, there was a total of 19, uh, that were dead inside the grounds. Uh, that told the others that that gate was open and clear and, and they all ran in. So a couple of hours later, maybe two hours, three hours later, I'm hiding out across the street from the main gate that you saw in the movie. And that was fairly accurate. That, was a, that wasn't the real embassy, but it was fairly accurate of what the embassy looked like. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, uh, I heard a tank coming from wherever and I hadn't seen a tank. There wasn't too many tanks that I saw in Vietnam. And this tank came down the street and stopped between me and the embassy, and it tur turned around and fired around right into the wall around the embassy, like it was depicted there in the movie. And I couldn't understand why it did that, because it turned just straightened up and he kept going like he had another place to go. It was only, his, his only purpose could have been was to blow a hole in that wall. And it was at that time that they must have determined how the enemy had gotten into our embassy. And it would have been embarrassing to know that there was embassy employees that obviously passed all of our security investigations on them. And as a matter of fact, uh, I, I never saw a proof of this, but one of the guards said while they were looking at these two guys and going through their pockets, that uh, this guy is the ambassador's driver. Uh, is that the answer to the question? I think that's a really great answer. Yes. I just wondered, uh, after you came back to Vietnam, how, uh, if and how did your relationship with the colonel and your friends at the bar change, or did it remain the same? So when you came back to Vietnam, how was your relationship with your friends and the colonel at the bar? Well, it was great. No change. If anything, it was an improvement. As a matter of fact, two people who actually owned the bar, Doc Federalist, Tommy Coughlin, who was a uh, federal agent, and Richard Shinnick, who was a firefighter at the time, uh, they bought a steakhouse up at Riverdale. That was the progression inward, you know. If you get made money, you moved up to Riverdale. Uh, they had elevators in all the buildings, not just a few. And uh, they sold me the bar uh, uh, in a deal that 
I couldn't refuse. Uh, they arranged for the guy who had the jukeboxes to give me an interest-free loan, and uh, they gave me credit, and uh, that was a direct result. They had to get out of that bar. They had to go to their steakhouse. They, uh, and so that's how I wound up with the bar, and the colonel stayed working there for me as, as long as I was there. So uh, it didn't hurt. Uh, Yeah. How close and accurate was the depiction of the journalists in the movie? Andrew, do you want to take that yeah, on? Sure. So, uh, in Chicky's book, you know, he, he mentions his time at the Caravelle Hotel, which was the um, you know bureau's um, headquarters for a lot of American news outlets, and, and was a popular hangout for journalists. And so, the idea of kind of putting an amalgam character together um, to for Chicky to interact with, kind of represent all the characters that appeared in, in his life and, and in the story of the book. You know, seemed seemed kind of an appropriate device, but I think in the process of, of making the film, we relied a lot on um, you know not only photojournalists, um, but but also just the firsthand accounts from from what happened in, in that in that time. And you know, we had a great uh, one of our great historical advisors, Leanne Hang Wen, who's a uh, professor of East Asian history here at Columbia University, uh, was involved on the film from the script writing all the way through editing. Uh, and and we also actually had a, other historical consultants who were husband and wife. Uh, they were Vietnamese reporters in Saigon during the war, and, and they, they were actually on set uh, for the, the making of the film. And, and so we relied heavily on them. You know, not only should interact with them, but we relied heavily in the making of the film. Actually, to also, um, this chicky story about the hole in the wall, you know, flies in, in contradiction with what is the conventional narrative of, of how the Viet Cong uh, broached the embassy. And we, so there was some debate of, well, you know, all the historical records says otherwise. Chicky in his book says this with the tank. Uh, and Pete Farrelly actually called up Peter Arnett, who was the first journalist on the scene, uh, who's uh, still alive, lives in New Zealand. And we were able to get Peter Arnett's number. And, and um, you know, we were always leaning towards putting the tank in the movie because it's, it's uh, based on the book that Chicky wrote, and it's his story. Um, but we just kind of were curious to hear uh, what Peter Arnett's take was, being that he was the first one there. And he, his response to Pete Fairley was, um, it, it very well could have happened. That, you know, there's, there's, he totally understood the logic and everything that Chicky just said, and um, that there's really no, there's, there's nothing to prove that it, that didn't happen. And so the fact that there's nothing definitive saying this is, you know, that they, the sappers blew a hole in the wall. Um, and, but, but, I guess, again, to answer the question, um, yeah, the journalists were, were a big presence. And, and so it was uh, as they were in the war itself. So we were, we were very glad to you know, honor and portray them in, in the movie. Um, yeah, and part two, your friends who had the photographs, are they anywhere that can be seen? Uh, Rick Dugan. <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't know where they are. He, some in his house. So you, if you, uh, the, there are many made into the documentary that we made in 2015. So if you go on YouTube and search "Greatest Bureau Ever," it, it should come up. Um, and uh, the the passport, the photos were, uh, I think, a big reason why we were able to make the documentary. Because of course, everybody wants to know did this really happen? And having that proof and evidence was a big part of it. 
but so we uh, thankfully I had just the photos at my disposal in making the, the, the documentary, and so you can see some of them there. And then, of course, our production design team uh, used them in you know the LZ Jane set, and uh, I mean they were an invaluable resource also for a costume designer. Uh, one other thing too is important to mention: Tim Page, who's a legendary photojournalist um, in Vietnam, he was also a, a consultant, and sadly passed away last year, uh, right before the film came out. But, um, you know, it, it, being that there hadn't been a Hollywood movie made or set during the Vietnam War in over 20 years, it, it was really important um, to kind of lean on as many resources uh, and first-hand accounts that, that we could while, while there were still people around to, to tell their stories. Yeah, well, I think it worked out making the movie when it was made. I think that distance from, as Tim used earlier, it was yeah. a blood and guts film. It wasn't, it wasn't Platoon in the no. 80s. Okay. Um, it wasn't something else like James Ladder or something else like that. It, it was something that was palatable. Um, and also, uh, what else was mentioned too, I thought the music was wonderful. I thought the scoring, not just, I mean the scoring, not just the choice of popular songs. I thought it helped take them, take the, um, take the, uh, the, the audience on a nice journey, uh, tonally throughout the entire piece. Yeah, well, that's the score of the time. Yeah, well, that, that was important. I mean, Peter Farrelly always has great soundtracks, uh, you know, uh, in, his, in his movies, and that was always going into it, making sure we weren't reusing the same old songs you've heard in every Vietnam War movie where it's almost become just a trope and a cliche. And so it was fun kind of making these deep dives because there was so much, so much great music uh, in, the, in 67 that um, we kind of mined for, for use in, in the movie. So that was, that was definitely intentional, trying to put together a soundtrack that you hadn't heard in other you know, movies set in this era. Well, they did a great job. Well, just think maybe one or two more questions down at the end. So, Ken? Have you ever returned to Vietnam? My wife and I uh, returned to Vietnam uh, twice. As a matter of fact, uh, the last time we were in Vietnam was 50 years to the hour. I was outside that embassy. We were there 50 years to the time the tank blew the hole in the wall. <laughs> There's one little piece I'd like inward people might appreciate more than most other people. And uh, there was a, a USO in Saigon. And during, after Tet, it didn't close down. There was just no, uh, no GIs available to go to the USO. Of course, I wasn't a GI, uh, so I had all the time in the world. So I went to the USO. And he's usually mobbed, nobody, except the employees. So I told him who I was, and I uh, asked if uh, the biggest thing the USO could do for you there at the time was to hook you up in a, in a, a ham radio telephone connection, where they, uh, they would, by radio, contact a radio ham operator in, say, California, and uh, they would be able to patch you into a telephone where you could call home. So I asked them if I could use it, and they allowed me to use it. And uh, because I found out from the American consul that I was reported missing, my family was uh, told that I was missing. So uh, I wanted to straighten that out. So I got home on the phone. 
And uh, Saigon was a, approximately 12 hours difference. And I was always aware of that. So uh, I called that when it was open. And it was open at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So the phone rings in the apartment on 207th Street at uh, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And usually uh, a 26-year-old uh, bachelor, it would have been from the bar or something. <laughs> Except it was me, and my father answered the phone. I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, who is this? I said, it's Chicky. Chicky, do you know what you're doing to your mother? <laughs> That's exactly what he said to me. And what was your response? <laughs> what could I do? Yeah, <laughs> silence. What could I do? There was no way. And they, they go, well, what time will you be home tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One last question over here. I just wanted to re uh, go back to the soundtrack. Did you have a say in any of the songs? Any creative control in your own oh. chicken or anything? Oh. No, 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 no. Green you must have. As, as Andrew yeah. was the only guy that I could talk to, and this is the first time I've mentioned this, Andrew, to anybody, oh, about, yeah, about, about the movie, about the movie when it was being done. Uh, uh, I, I'm not bragging now about one of my friends was Frank McCourt, another Irish guy who lived in New York, all right? And, uh, and I worked with him briefly in the Consortium for Worker Education, which is a union uh, educational program. And uh, he told me uh, when he, after Angela's Ashes, uh, he was very upset with how the movie was done. And he tried to influence them. This is his story to me. And uh, I'll never forget it. He said uh, uh, that if you ever do a, a, a book or a movie, you won't be able to say anything. They don't want to hear you. They're all, they all think they're artists. <laughs> and you're not an artist. OK. So I remember that when it first, when it, when it started. And uh, I had nothing to say about the movie. I didn't try to have anything to say about the movie, except when they told me my grandchildren couldn't come on the set. And they had. <laughs> the audacity to tell me that because of COVID and the union rules that my grandchildren were not to be allowed on the set. Well, I'm a union guy. <laughs> I went to the set and I had a meeting with the six or seven shop stewards from the different trades that were on the set. No problem. <laughs> Any parting words, Andrew? I uh, want to talk about the journey of the film and, and where, where we are now. I know it's on Apple, um, in perpetuity, in perpetuity, probably. And, uh, but uh, for the time being, at least, yeah. being, on at Apple least. TV. And if, and if it's your first time seeing it, I uh, hope you tell your friends. It is on Apple TV Plus, and um, hopefully, it'll be on DVDs in one one year, one day. Yeah, yeah, when they make a comeback. Yeah, whatever. Or or sunglasses, or the new medium will be. No, I encourage you. Press the DVD last February. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it going to be a theatrical release globally at 
It did. And so the, the, the film, uh, we were fortunate enough to premiere at the Toronto Film Festival this past September. Uh, it, it had the actual run for a bit, you know, September through October. Um, so, you know, that window's kind of come and gone, but, but yeah, as, as Aaron mentioned, it'll live on on Apple TV+. Plus. Um, and yeah, yeah, read the book and, and the documentary is uh, free on YouTube. Uh, but no, I just want to thank you again. Uh, I never, when I first met Chicky, like I said, almost nine years ago, uh, you know, to be here to share the film with you all, um, especially Memorial Day weekend, it's just, you know, there's been many surreal uh, moments throughout this whole journey uh, in, in uh, positive ways. And, um, but this, this certainly, Feels like as as this whole journey comes to an end, this feels like a very appropriate way to kind of tie it all up. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any parting words? Any parting words? Any parting words? Yes. I love the idea that Inwood is on the map again. When my wife and I were discussing how we were going to get here and all of, all of that stuff, I, you know, are we going to, are you going to go, honey? You know, she, she, uh, anyway, she said, uh, we decided that this is our home. This is where we came from. This is really home. And, uh, and, and I just love the idea that Inwood has its own film festival, the arts, it's, uh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and I hope to be involved in it as at any way I can uh, forever. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And, thank you, and thank you both for trusting me with your film to show it here and bring it to our community. So I'm very grateful for your trust in what we do and, and how we do it. And um, I just want to say that uh, the greatest fear on will live on. And uh, you're another page in, in another chapter in Inwood history. So thank you for all you do. Thank you, Andrew, for bringing the screen. A round of applause Thank you so much for tuning in, and special thanks to Chicky Donahue and Andrew Moscato for joining me on this exclusive live podcast recording before a wonderful and engaged audience at the 6th Annual Inwood Film Festival. This is Inwood Artworks On Air. It's where you meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home here in Upper Manhattan. If you have a moment, please show some love right now by rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Many thanks to Columbia University and the good folks here at the Campbell Sports Center for hosting us, and also to Hidesites.com for local uptown promotional support. You can support On Air and all of our programming by making a tax-free donation at inwoodartworks.nyc backslash donate or via Venmo. Be sure to follow us on social media at Inwood Artworks to keep up with all that we do, which includes the Inwood Film Festival, Filmworks Al Fresco, pop-up art galleries, live performances, and so much more. Inwood Artworks On Air is proud to be supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Inwood Artworks programming is made possible by the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the Office of the Governor and the New York State Legislature. From the top of Manhattan and the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for tuning in. This is Aaron Sims for Inwood Artworks On Air. <laughs> <laughs>